Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, if you've been listening to VOCM today, you've heard our friend Greg Smith broadcasting the Daffodil Place Radiothon, which is their biggest fundraising event of the year. Today, we're going to talk with Al Pelly, who's the executive director of Daffodil Place, who'll tell us more about the fundraiser and the significant strain that COVID-19 has placed on their fundraising efforts this year. This is why today's Radiothon is so important. But before we get to him, in the first two parts of the show, we're going to talk with two amazing individuals who have had cancer touch them in different but very significant ways. First, we'll talk with Gerilyn Hansford. Her family tree has been plagued by a rare genetic mutation for generations, causing stomach and breast cancer in dozens of her relatives. She lost her sister and her brother to this disease at a young age. But through her proactivity, she was able to identify that she was a carrier of that gene, as was her mother. Both her and her mother had preventative surgery to remove their stomachs and undergo regular monitoring, which, as we'll hear, ultimately has saved their lives. This tragedy of losing her brother and sister has helped steer her two daughters to become physicians, one of which was recognized by the Tap Your Potential program for conducting research that now appears in medical journals on the very gene that impacted her mother and family. Gerilyn, or G as I've always called her, joined me to chat about this difficult but important message of being an advocate for your health and the importance of life-saving cancer research. Hi, G. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. We're talking about some different stories that people have experienced when it comes to cancer. In your case, you never got sick. Can you give me a bit of a family history about the, about the rare form of cancer that was, it was inherent to your family? Sure. Um, my sister Arlene, back in 1996, was diagnosed with uh, hereditary diffuse gastric cancer, uh, which is a form of stomach cancer normally caught very late, uh, which resulted in, uh, in her passing in 2002. Prior to that then, or once Arlene was diagnosed originally back in 1996, my older sister Lynn and I decided that because of the family history on, on my mom's side, there were so many in her family that had ended up with cancer, various types of cancer, but many of them with stomach, that this thing had to be uh, genetic. So we reached out to the genetic group here in Newfoundland under Dr. Jane Green. And through a number of tests and some history, uh, she discovered that she wanted us to get blood work done. And we did. And it was back then in 2005, it was discovered that Arlene's cancer was indeed gastric cancer. And we ended up getting our blood work done, sent out to, the, uh, to British Columbia. And Dr. Huntsman, who is a Newfoundlander, worked with the team that actually discovered the gene. And I was a carrier of the gene. And it would have resulted, had I not gotten my stomach removed, there was a, uh, about an 85% chance that I would have ended up with that particular type of uh, uh, cancer. And that cancer is very deadly. How, how deadly is that cancer? In women, if, uh, if you are a carrier, there is a, about an 85% chance that you would end up with it. And uh, by the time it's found, it's very late because uh, the tumors hide through the stomach lining and uh, through the wall. And then you can get uh, endoscopies done, which, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the things that I did get done. And uh, however, by the time it is found, it's normally too late. And that's what ended up happening with my sister and then most recently in 2017, it actually happened. My, my younger brother uh, mm -hmm. passed away at age 51. 
Arlene was 40 and Kenny was 51. There's definitely tragedy that went with that. Uh, Your mother, though, was also identified and was able to avert it. Yes. Yeah, uh, mom had diagnosed because what part of also part of this gene mutation comes with lobular breast cancer. And uh, mom had breast cancer in 1998 mm-hmm. and, uh, and had a mastectomy. And then in the year, actually, it was actually the day before Arlene passed away in December of 2002 that my mom actually had actually had her stomach removed that she actually did have the cancer, but because she was monitored so closely that they found it and, and uh, she's 91 today and still kicking. Pretty spry too. <laughs> she sure is, yeah. One of the things I've found when I meet medical professionals that are doing this type of work is that a lot of the time they tend to be the most passionate and they can be connected to it for some reason. Your daughter ended up going to school to work under that physician that was involved in the genetic identification. And, and it's since led to her being involved in the field of medicine as a doctor. Tell me about that situation. That is, yeah. So Samantha, our youngest daughter, once she, she actually had been tested because, uh, because I was a carrier of the gene, both of my daughters, Erica and Samantha, both had to be tested because there was a 50-50 chance that they could have also been a carrier. And uh, luckily, uh, we won the jackpot and won the, uh, the lottery twice that both of our daughters tested negative. And however, it did spark both of them. Uh, they had an interest in medicine, particularly Samantha. She grew an interest in wanting to become a genetic counselor early on in, in 2011. So we connected with Dr. Huntsman, who, who works out in the BC Cancer Center in uh, British Columbia. And um, he, uh, he was very interested in her decision of wanting to, uh, to help. So she moved out to Vancouver in 2011 applied for genetic counseling and worked under Dr. Huntsman and the research team. And she didn't uh, actually get into genetic counseling and she did a master's in pathology and lab medicine, got about five or six of her papers were, uh, uh, were now in medical journals and uh, under Dr. Huntsman. And uh, she's now finishing her second year of family medicine in Queen's University. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, quite a story. And she was actually uh, recognized for her work with Tap Your Potential. But then your other daughter as well is also a physician. And that's correct. Erica is a, uh, an eMERGE doctor here in uh, St. John's at the Health Science. And I think she kind of goes between Health Science and St. Clair. So we're pretty proud of the two of them. That's for sure. I'm sure. And that's the type of people that we need uh, that are passionate about it and understand what the real lived experience is like for people. Let's go back to your situation. You were able to avoid any adverse reactions to the genetics that you were given, but this is a health and wellness show as well. So how did your life change? Because I've got to think that your diet and your whole lifestyle had to change when they remove your stomach. Yes. Yes. I think a lot of people just think that there might still be a little piece of the stomach there. There is not indeed. It's completely gone. I had a wonderful team of of medical professionals, right from uh, the lady who checked me in at the health science uh, right on through. And I'm still screened actually for uh, breast cancer and colon. And, And I can't thank those people enough. But you know what? You've got to take care of your own body. You are your own health advocate. And I'm, I'm a real believer that um, you're the only one who knows your body well enough. You know, so I, I did. Uh, it, it took me a little while to figure out my eating habits. But, uh, you know, the more you think about it and the more you hear from uh, health and wellness people, 
that what I have to do today is really what we all should be doing, and that is eating small meals five or six times a day. Don't sit down and, and have coffee in the morning, coffee at lunch, and then a great big you know, meal <laughs> at supper time. Eat throughout the day, small meals. And uh, you know there are certain things that cause me more discomfort, and you figure them out you know, throughout. I mean, I had my stomach removed since 2006, and uh, you know, so it's almost 14 years now that I've lived with it. And there's, there's still some times that, you know, I might eat something that I realize that uh, I should probably shouldn't have had to do that. But it's, it's really just the feel that I get is just the best way I can describe it is if somebody was uh, having motion sickness. And uh, for me, it lasts about 10 or 15 minutes, almost like waves of motion. And, and then after that, you know, once it settles, settles down, I'm, you know, up and ready to go again. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised about that, actually. You said the word, you have to be your own health advocate. So I'm going to go back to the fact that you and your family decided to go get tested because you saw, you observed a trend that was existing in your family. That's really important advice for people. If something doesn't seem right, maybe you should go get it checked out. Like, what would you tell people about being an advocate when it comes to going to the doctor? I think sometimes people are afraid to talk to a doctor because they, they don't know as much. If something seems off, what should you do? And again, Mike, I I really truly believe that you are the only person who truly knows your body and you know when there is something wrong. Uh, Lots of times, and I'm included, uh, you kind of put it off to being something else. And even for my sister Arlene, back in, in the early 90s, she was having issues. And, you know, you kind of put it off, well, I'm really busy at work and I'm you know, I haven't eaten very well, or I just got a headache or, you know, and, and just putting it off. Oftentimes it's put off to stress and things that are going on in your life. But I really believe that these are just signs for you to, you know, go and sit and talk to your doctor between you and them. You can help each other figure out what it is that's going on. Cause oftentimes there is something happening. And you never know, you might be sitting across from a physician who's had a very similar experience with somebody in their family, just like one of your two daughters. Absolutely. It's sometimes looking at things and and recognizing the patterns is something that's obviously benefited your family when it came to people that were able to get the treatment. Uh, G, thank you for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. It's nice for people to hear the the benefits of research and, and what happens and some of the good news stories that come out of it. So thank you. Thank you, Mike, for your work. It's, uh, and and your, uh, your show is wonderful to listen to. You've got some, you got some great people on it. Thanks so much. Well, that was Gerilyn Hansford sharing a very difficult story about her family's struggle with a rare genetic cancer and the importance for self-advocacy for people who may be facing similar challenges. But it's also a story of how tragedy can inspire as we heard about both of her daughter's paths into medicine and how one of them did research into the very genes that have impacted their family. After the break, we'll talk with my friend Larry Vaden, who through regular monitoring based on his family history, was able to early diagnose cancer. He'll talk about how his health literacy aided him in his fight. And while we're at break, don't forget to call in and donate to the 24-hour one-night stand against cancer at Daffodil Place at 1-844-229-0146. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. We're talking about cancer today as we help raise donations for the Daffodil Place 24-hour one-night stand against cancer. We're also talking to some amazing individuals who have faced cancer in different ways. Our next guest is Larry Vaden, who I've known for almost 20 years. Not too long ago, he was diagnosed with stage 3 bowel cancer and had a big fight on his hands. Now, Larry was a former professional soccer player in Europe before he moved to Newfoundland to work in oil and gas. And he credits some of his success of fighting off cancer to his healthy lifestyle. But he also had a strong understanding of his health and he advocated for it much like our first guest, Gerilyn. We caught up to reflect on that experience and how it's made him an advocate for cancer treatment in the province, now as a board member for the Cancer Center. Let's check it out. Hey, Larry, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike, good to be here. Yeah, well, we've known each other for a long time, and I know about your experience you've had with cancer, but would you mind filling in the audience on like how you came face-to-face with a pretty deadly disease? Yeah, sure, mate. It's, uh, it's probably it's, it's a bigger story, too, because it's, it's not just how I came face-to-face with it. So, so if, I, if I can really go back probably 15 years now, uh, I suddenly realized that... Uh, Genetically, I've done really well, but genetics don't go all the way for you. And at some point in time, you, you've got to take a little bit of ownership in your own health. So, so a good 15 years ago, I, I took my own health a lot more seriously, looked at my diet, started to understand uh, my diet and what to eat, how to eat, when to eat. And I started working out at the gym. As you know, I've, I've worked out with yourself quite a bit over the years. Mm-hmm. And so that started a, a, a platform for me. And then around about 10 years ago, I got the news my father had passed away with bowel cancer. My father was of that generation that uh, suffered in silence. He had a lot of discomfort. He would go down for a lay down in the afternoon. Eventually, my mum got him to go to, to see a, a doctor. Eight days later, he passed away. So all those years, he just ignored symptoms. I spoke to my own doctor here. And it's all about really, you know, taking, taking your own responsibility for your own health. Talk to my own doctor, talk to him about that. Had, a, had some tests done and I was okay. Then in my next round of tests, they found bowel cancer in me as well. Uh, that led to some significant surgery. The cancer was a stage three, which led to chemotherapy. And it, it was really interesting though, because you, you go to chemotherapy, if you first visit your oncologist, he explains how the cancer developed, what it was all about, what what your survival probabilities are, and it's all mathematics. So then uh, then from there it was, and you're going to do chemotherapy for 48 hours every two weeks for six months. And what you or I or most of us know about chemotherapy, your hair falls out and you're violently sick and, you, and you're really ill. And he, he followed that by saying to me, you're in great shape. It'll be a walk in the park for you. And that, and that sort of knocked me back a little bit, but uh, but that was a reality too. It, it was absolutely right. I, I, I went through it. I managed to continue working. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had, had days off here and there where I didn't feel so well, but I managed to continue working. Got all the way through it, and thankfully I can say four years later now, I'm uh, you know I'm a survivor. So mm. really uh, you know really good story in, in that respect. But but what did it tell me about it when he said you know it's a bit walk in the park. What he was talking about was my overall physical health and strength. The mm-hmm. fact that I was physically in, in good condition, I was in the best condition I could be in to fight a deadly disease. Had it not been a survivable deadly disease, I was still in a good condition to enjoy what I would have had left, rather 
you hear so many stories and you see so many people that just just suffer so much because they weren't in in, in that good shape before they started. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in some cases, maybe it doesn't make a difference, but but certainly in my case, the I had the opportunity to survive and I had the you know the the body that enabled me to get through it really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even that education that I'd taken in the early part of, of changing my lifestyle around what, what I should eat and how, how I should eat, even that helped out because I, you, know, you, you don't feel like eating when you're going through it. So, so knowing what I could eat to get the right calories into my body so that uh, I was ready to take the next cycle of chemo when it came in, it was just so important. That's, that's interesting because you have a lot of health literacy. So your background is you played professional soccer in Europe before you came here. So you had a way of eating and living and being, and then all of a sudden you got diagnosed with cancer and you've got to go through chemotherapy and you've got to tweak everything. How important is it for people to understand the impact of food and activity and what they should and shouldn't be doing during a critical stage like chemotherapy? Yeah, really important. And I've got to say, I mean, a lot of people, you hear so many bad stories about the healthcare system here. I have to say that when you get diagnosed with something like that and you're in that system, you, you couldn't ask for better. There's probably no better in the world. I, mean, you know, I had my own oncologist. I had people to talk to all the time. I would see a dietitian there every, every couple of months just to talk about what's good to eat, what's not good to eat, how I'm doing, and, and, and adjust, adjusting uh, what I would eat as I would go through. Mm-hmm. Through doing workouts, because I... There was I could bring other things into play as well. Some of the supplements that I would use through doing workouts, you, you can get different variants of that, which would just give you a massive calorie increase. So when you just didn't feel hungry, you could drink chocolate milk that gave you a thousand calories, and <laughs> a thousand really good calories. You know, yeah, way better than trying to suffer through a Big Mac. Right, exactly, and healthier for you. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, and that's the that was the fun. I remember you going through that and being like, I could eat, have, have chocolate milk, and I could have, you know, full fat dairy right now. But that was the right thing at that time because your body was under so much duress dealing with that. You were losing weight because you couldn't eat regularly. Um, when it, when it comes to exercise, like how did uh, like you had a surgery, right? So how did your recovery pan out, and how do you think it could have turned out if you weren't quite as strong? So that was, uh, I mean, the surgery was significant. Obviously, there was a, a, a large section of my bowel taken out. So that's uh, a major cut through the, the, the abdomen to do that. So, you know, that, the whole abdominal wall, uh, probably the most important tool, important tool in your body is your core. And mm. they, they basically cut the, middle out, cut the middle out of my core. And so had I not been in good shape to start with, it, it, you know, it's really difficult to get moving again. And so the fact that I was in, in good shape, I could get moving early. And the earlier you can start moving, the earlier you can start your recovery. You can't overdo it, of course, because there's, there's so much damage done internally. Just where the stitches are on the outside, that, that's, that's the minor part. There's so much more inside that's got to settle as well. Mm-hmm. But it, I spent time with a physiotherapist shortly after my surgery to understand what I could and couldn't do and what exercises I could start doing that wouldn't I mean, I wasn't allowed to lift more than 10 pounds. I wasn't allowed to do this. I wasn't allowed to do that. But you can still find out if you talk to the right people what you can do to enhance your recovery because occupational therapy or physical therapy, the earlier you can start doing things, the quicker your recovery is. The more you sit back, the more you lay down and, and, and I guess feel sorry for yourself almost. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to. There's many times I felt sorry for myself mm-hmm. while I was going through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the earlier you can get back to doing stuff, the quicker, the quicker and better your recovery is going to be. Well, there's a real message to sort of 
permeating through everything you're saying. So you were aware of the genetic risk factors because of your father. You got regular checkups. You were an advocate for your health to make sure that your medical team knew what was going on. When you were faced with it, you sought out dietetics help. You sought out advice from your oncologist. You sought out advice from a physiotherapist. Uh, I think that you said before about your father suffering in silence. Like, Why is it so critical that people have a team around them when they're facing that? Because none of us know it all. There's experts out there. None, none of us know it all, you know. And and the the worst thing you can do is is to go to the internet and read the internet and become an internet expert. Mm. There's professionals out there that, that know everything, and you just seek out whatever. You know, when when you go and buy a car, when you when you go and buy a house, do you do you search the internet or, or do you take advice from experts in those lines of business? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why do you not take the why not take the the expertise from the folk in the lines of business in the healthcare system? Exactly. They know what's best. And, and it's quite astounding. After my surgery, they give you a little pamphlet on what's likely to happen for the next four or five days. And bang on schedule, my body did exactly what the pamphlet told me it was going to do. Cool. Yeah. That's so pretty cool. Yeah. Do a bit of the work. I mean, you know, we, we research all sorts of stuff, like you said, their cars and our houses and everything, but we're going into a surgery. We should understand as much as we can about our body. And there's lots of resources out there uh, and people that are willing to help. You have now become uh, an advocate for cancer. Um, tell me about the, the volunteer efforts that you've put forward since, uh, since you've recovered. Yeah, sure. So, so a lot of time I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of people. I've talked to a lot of functions or just around what I said earlier, you know, about my father, not, not, uh, taking a diagnosis at all, suffering in silence. So it's so really reinforcing with people. If, if, if something's not right, it probably isn't right. And you need to talk to your doctor. You, and if your doctor fobs you off you, you need, and you, you know, you feel it's wrong, get a second opinion, but, you really need to advocate for yourself until you get a doctor advocating for you in the system, because it's very easy just to sit back and say, Hey, that's nothing wrong. Okay. I'll carry on. Hmm. And you hear so many stories of people being diagnosed at uh, a stage four and, and it's too late for them. Mm-hmm. And even in my own case, when they found it, I was stage three. I had absolutely no symptoms at all. I, yeah. I remember going in for the, for the exam it was, it was a colonoscopy. And the doctor saying, hey, how are you feeling? I'm feeling really good. I played golf yesterday and I'm just feeling in great shape. And an hour later, I got that news that, uh, that they'd found something and he could tell from what he could see without the biopsy that, that it was cancer. So it can happen real quick. So if there's genetic uh, disposition in your, in, your his, in your family history, you just got to go and, and chase your doctors and advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and shortly after that, it was, it was really quite timely. Uh, I finished my treatment and uh, the Bliss Murphy Cancer Foundation started the polka dot trot off, mm-hmm. which was, uh, it, which is a five kilometer walk for all cancers in Canada. So that was so just great. It was perfect timing for me. It was my opportunity to give back to the, to the folk that have, that had done so much for me. Mm-hmm. And, and so I attended the first event and, uh, and met with the executive director and one of my friends who was on the, on the board there. So since that, at that point in time, I'm very privileged to, to become a director of the Dr. H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Care Foundation. So really trying to help others like myself mm-hmm. as, as they go on that long journey. Well, I think that's what you need. It seems every person that I have talked to that's either an expert or an advocate has some sort of personal connection to it because it means something to them. It sounds like you're doing great work and I'm, I'm glad that you were healthy before you even uh, started down that, that road. Uh, Me too. Thanks, Mike. That was Larry Vodden, who shared his personal experience of fighting off a cancer 
that took his father's life and could have easily taken him without his proactivity and health literacy. When we come back, we'll chat with Al Pelly, the executive director of Daffodil Place. He'll tell us more about the Daffodil Place 24-hour one-night stand against cancer telethon that's going on today and the significant strain that COVID-19 has placed on their fundraising efforts this year, which is why this radiothon is so important. So stick around. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. Today is the 24-hour Radiothon for Daffodil Place and their one-night stand against cancer. Joining me to tell me about Daffodil Place and their need for your support is their executive director, Al Pelly. I'm glad he could join us to talk because I can attest, Daffodil Place is an amazing support for those facing cancer. He joined me for a chat about their efforts to help those facing cancer in our communities. Hey, Al, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Mike. Thank you for having me. Well, you've had a busy day today. You have been uh, nonstop on VOCM because you have a big event coming up. But before we start, can you tell me a little bit about Daffodil Place and what you do up there? Well, Daffodil Place, um, it, it opened in July of 2009 out of a need for a facility to provide affordable accommodations for people living with cancer who have to travel to St. John's for cancer care. As you know, when, they, um, when, when someone comes in for treatments, oftentimes they could be away from their homes for weeks or even months. And we've had them stay at Daffodil Place for up to as long as six months. So um, obviously we needed a, a, there was a need for a facility that could provide affordable accommodations. So Daffodil Place was it. And we charge, I think it's $25 a night for a cancer patient and caregivers. So for $50 a night, they get a comfortable room. They get three cooked meals per day. They get uh, transportation to and from their appointments. In normal times outside of COVID, uh, we have entertainers who come in in the evenings. They also have access to all of our supportive care programs mm-hmm. and, and uh, print materials. So it's kind of like one-stop shopping uh, for them. But most importantly, Everyone who's at Daffodil Place are there for the same reason, so they support each other, and it's amazing how quickly they form friendships uh, at the facility. So since we opened, we've had over, a little over 8,000 people stay there from 416 communities, I think, throughout Newfoundland and Labrador, for a total of a little over 90,000 nights. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, going back to the rates that we charge, uh, you know, nobody has ever turned away, turned away if they can't afford to pay $50 a night. We find a way. But the, the big issue for us is uh, it's actually costing us about $115 a night at the Canadian Cancer Society per room. Mm. So there's a huge gap, a growing gap in uh, what we're charging and uh, what it's actually costing us. So the Take a One Night Stand campaign against cancer uh, was designed to help uh, bridge that gap a little so that we would not have to increase user rates at Daffodil Place. Right. Well, you've got so that's that's obviously going on today. And you have had some pretty good star power from a local celebrity that, that helped promote this program. Tell folks a little bit more about it. Well, Alan Hocko, uh, 
I think we're going back, I don't know if it's four years or five years now, but I remember when I approached Alan uh, and asked him if he'd uh, be the honorary ambassador for the Take a One Night Stand or honorary chair uh, campaign. And, um, you know, he quickly agreed to it. And uh, he's really taken Daffodil Place on as a charity that he enjoys being affiliated with and lending his name to for this campaign. And I know that we did a, a couple of events in Toronto with the uh, cast and, and band from Come From Away. And he orchestrated that through uh, his connections, uh, through his brother who was involved in that. And that raised a little over $100,000 for that place in, in uh, over a two-year period. So Alan's been great. And uh, he's going to be around tomorrow. Um, you'll hear him on the air uh, with, with Greg and uh, who knows, he might stop by Daffodil Place uh, for a visit uh, throughout the day. But the one thing that I really like about Alan is when he goes to Daffodil Place, he always takes time to chat with the guests. Mm. They're, they're like super important to him. Right. That's what it's all about. And they don't make him any better than him, I'll tell you that. He's been he's put his name to a couple of things, and every time he does it, he gives it 100% effort. And, and he's, a he's, guy. he's a great we're guy. Lucky to we're lucky to have him. We are, we are. Some of the money not only goes to for the stays for people, but you mentioned supportive care. I've seen some of the support you give people up there. What are some of the things I know you guys do wigs, for example, and you've got transportation. Yeah, well, we have the, uh, the transportation program, volunteer driving program from uh, it's the shuttle service. We call it from Daffodil place to the cancer center and back as you can appreciate uh, people coming in from rural Newfoundland is where the majority of our guests come from. Uh, trying to navigate between Daffodil Place and the Health Science Center is a heavy, heavy volume traffic area. And um, if you're not used to that, it can be very challenging. So we take that stress off their plate and we provide the rides through our volunteer driving program. And Capital Hyundai has donated, a right from day one, has donated a vehicle uh, that we use for that purpose. So that that's an important support. Pre-COVID, we were doing volunteer drives throughout the, the metropolitan area of St. John's. So people, we pick people up at their homes, bring them to their appointment and bring them back home. That's currently on hold due to COVID. And another program that we have is the um, community resource room where we provide wigs, turbans, temporary prostheses. So people actually can't come and visit us now because of, of COVID, but uh, what has been happening is we've been doing it virtually. So uh, we take a picture of a wig or whatever, and someone likes it, we send it to them nice. or we leave, you know, and, it, and it's working. And, uh, you know, we, we give out about 8,000 pieces of these uh, equipment, or well, not equipment, but supplies throughout the year. And that's pretty significant. It makes a big difference for people and they're going through it. And, and I think that's the whole point of what Daffodil Place is about is that people are going through stressful times and it takes extra stress they don't need to have off their plate, whether it be they're losing their hair and they don't know how to deal with that or they need to drive or they're coming in and they don't have a place to stay. I mean, Daffodil Place is all about supportive care. And when you're going through a cancer journey, uh, you know, uh, support is very, very important. And with Daffodil Place, we provide all the amenities of home, which we're so proud of. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a home away from home. So many people say that and have referred to Daffodil Place as their, their second home. And, um, you know, our, our whole goal there is uh, make it stress-free, 
make it home-like and uh, just allow the people who are staying there to focus on getting well. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's such a valuable resource for the whole province and from Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Um, but undoubtedly, the pandemic has affected fundraising and operations. How has COVID-19 impacted Davidal Place? Big time. Um, we, um, uh, um, you know, we, our fundraising program has, has taken a tremendous hit. Uh, normally, we would do daffodil flower sales in March. We would do Relay for Life events uh, in anywhere from May to August. We would be doing youth relays uh, in May and June. Um, then there's our Run for the Cure event that we do and uh, other special events. Mm-hmm. All of these events, the in-person events, were temporarily uh, suspended for the foreseeable future until we get through this pandemic. And um, so the impact to our revenue was about $1.7 million wow. on a budget of about $2.5 million or $2.4 million. Uh, that's significant. And uh, now we've been adapting. We're doing, you know, trying to do some events virtually. And, and the One Night Stand campaign is getting good support from the corporate community and, and from individuals, as it always does, and organizations. Our Radiothon is what we're really hoping uh, is going to be a huge success. We hope it's going to be the biggest event that we've ever done. It's a 24-hour event sponsored by our good friends at VOCM. And uh, Greg Smith will be the host for 24 hours. Typically, he'd be in a room at Daffodil Place for 24 hours. But due to COVID, we can't do that this year. So he'll be at the station. But everything else will remain the same. And cancer patients right now are depending on us now more than they have ever before. Mm -hmm. And COVID has added additional stress to their lives. On average, 11 people every day are diagnosed in this province. And that didn't stop. Mm-hmm. And so they're depending on us to be there for them when they, when they need it the most. Yeah. And we're hoping that our Radiothon will help us bridge that gap that we talked about earlier. What are the, what are the hours of the, of the Radiothon? It will launch at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, and it will go right through to 8 o'clock on Friday morning. And we uh, have volunteers who will be manning... Um, three phones and they'll be socially distanced, of course, in our boardroom. And, uh, and we will have all of, they'll have their masks and uh, all of the necessary PPE supplies that they would need. And uh, so there'll be a number that uh, Greg will be giving out starting tomorrow morning and uh, it'll run through right through to Friday morning. And we have a number of people who are coming in tomorrow to make check presentations. They've been raising money or, they just want to make a commitment to Daffodil Place as they've been doing for many years. So we're hoping it's going to be an exciting day. We're talking with Al Pelly, Executive Director for Daffodil Place. They're having their 24-hour one-night stand against cancer today. If you want to donate, you can call 1-844-229-0146. The phone lines are open. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Today is the Daffodil Place 24-hour one-night stand against cancer. We're talking with Al Pelly, Executive Director for Daffodil Place, about why they need our support more than ever this year. Let's get back to the interview. 
for anybody listening, they, people know that how involved I am with cancer, having lost my father to it. I had an episode last week on pancreatic cancer, but I've seen the value of what Daffodil Place does for people. And I know how difficult it is. I was very fortunate. My family would, had a lot of good support and we knew how to navigate things maybe a little bit more, a little easier than some, but for the people that, that are really scared and have so many other things, I, I've just seen what Daffodil Place does uh, and how important it is to the community and how passionate the people are that work there. They're there for a reason. And the board, same way, yes. all the volunteers, people like Greg that are helping VOCM, uh, these, you know, there, there is a really nice energy about it. But right now there is a need for support because it has been hit so hard. The, another thing about the, the whole pandemic is it also added costs because you're dealing with cancer patients. So you have to be as careful as any other place, like a hospital, like a, like a long-term care home, because you have such a vulnerable population. Tell me about that. Our operational costs, uh, we, as you probably know, we were closed for three months. Mm-hmm. Um, we closed in, in April um, because, you know, we, our, our facility was uh, not up to grade, I guess, in terms of PPE. Our staff wasn't trained. And appointments, cancer-related appointments were, were down. So we were able to make alternate arrangements for uh, people to stay elsewhere. During that time, we, were, we, were closed. we reopened, I think, in, in July. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, during that time we were able to get our facility upgraded to ensure that we were meeting the uh, public health guidelines for uh, covid and we uh, were able to train our staff and get the proper PPE equipment and you know, supplies in place. So you go in our cafeteria now, it looks different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there used to be like 12 tables in there. Now I think there might be five and there's plexiglass right in the middle of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not everybody can go in and have their meal at the same time. They have to go at different times or they can go down and take their meal and go back to their room our social room where we have our guitar, our TV, our library, our computer, our crib board, all the exciting things um, <laughs> that people do in the evenings is closed right now because mm. we can't have gatherings, right? Yeah. So there is a little bit of an isolation uh, issue uh, in that regard. Um, and we're working on that. Um, I'm happy to say that Best Buy donated 10 tablets to us. So we're trying to put some virtual activities together that uh, the guests can enjoy in their rooms. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, uh, there's always ways around, around it. And, uh, but our goal is to make people stay as comfortable and enjoyable as possible under the difficult times that they're going through. Well, so say somebody's listening right now. Uh, are, do you only deal with certain types of cancer or how do people get in touch with you? Like how do people navigate that? We support all cancers, as you know. So, you know, there's probably 130 different types of of cancers. We support them all. And if someone is required to come to Daffodil Place uh, or come to St. John's for treatment and they're looking for accommodations, we just require a letter from their oncologist or from their doctor or, uh, you know, to state the times that they need to come to St. John's and for, the, for their treatments. And it's a pretty simple process. And uh, I will say, though, that we do have wait lists. And since we've reopened in July, we've been pretty much at full capacity. Wow. So there are, there are wait lists, but uh, our team on the front desk there, they're great at accommodating people. It may take a couple of days or whatever, but 
they they do a really good job in in getting people in and out. Okay, well that's great. And and I like I said, I've seen it firsthand. I know how valuable it is. It shows how valuable it is the second you open back up that you're at capacity. If people want to call in and donate to the Radiothon, how do they do that? We accept all the major credit cards and or you know and, and the volunteers on the phone will take their information. We have. They actually have debit machines there, so they can use debit or a major credit card, and uh, we can do it right over the telephone. Uh, so we make it as simple as possible, or they'll just, some people will say, well, I don't want to do it that way, but I'll mail a check-in, so we'll, we'll write down their information, and when the check comes in, we can cross-reference it, uh, the information that we have. But what I will say is we really need support. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cancer is, um, is a huge issue in this province. I don't have to tell you that. And, you know, support is everything and we really need support. And, you know, I would like to say to people who are listening to please, you know, if you can give $10, if you can give $25 or $50, um, you know, it would go a long ways in, uh, in helping us uh, with the uh, challenges that we currently face. $100 will cover the costs or will help cover the costs associated with one night at Daffodil Place for a patient and caregiver. So think about that. And, you know, not everybody can afford to give $100, but, uh, you know, 520s equals 100 or 1010s mm-hmm. equals 100. So it all, it's all important. And, uh, you know, any companies that are, are listening, you know, instead of having your lunch break tomorrow, why don't you all throw in your lunch money and make a donation to uh, Daffodil Place. And, uh, but it's, um, it's a very important cause. It, uh, it impacts so many people in this province. And we have the highest cancer incidence rate per capita in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, the support right now is needed more than ever before because of COVID. And uh, I just want to thank people in advance for doing that. No, that's right. And you know, it's, it's funny, like the ocean's big, but it's made of drops of water and companies that want to do something. And everybody knows times are tough sometimes now for people, but it's those little contributions that add up and make a huge difference people. And don't, I think people sometimes think they have to give a lot, but if again, the small company gestures, or they want to, could they get a hold of you if a company wanted to say, we're going to do something for the course of the year, or we're going to put together something for yep. donation? All they need to do is call 753-6522 and they will get me directly. Great. That thing's on my hip all the time. And, I know it is. <laughs> uh, yep. And uh, so they'll get me directly and I'd be happy to, uh, to walk them through how they can, how they can help us. I mean, there's groups out there that do little independent fundraising events for us and, you know, they raise $500, $1,000, $5,000. I mean, it, it, all, it all helps, right? Yes. No better time than tomorrow to call in and say, guess what? We've raised $300 for you or we want to cover three nights at Daffodil Place. Uh, you know, we'd love to hear from, from uh, people tomorrow. What? Now, not everybody's name is going to get announced either because, you know, <laughs> being done a little bit differently um, because of the circumstances. But... I can guarantee you that everybody will be appreciated and thanked for their generosity. 
I don't think there's a more of a time in, in our lifetime that health has been more top of mind. We hear about it every single day and just, uh, you know, you can imagine that daily life seems difficult enough, let alone if you're facing cancer. And that's what you guys do there is you help people during some of the most trying times of their life. So thank you for what you do, Al. Well, it's, it's a pleasure. I actually enjoy it. And I sleep well at night and I get up in the mornings and I, I feel good about going to work and, and the work that we're doing. And we've got great volunteers that, as I said earlier, make it possible and uh, make it easy for me to do my job. But when, I, when a cancer patient comes up to you and says, thank you for uh, this beautiful facility you have here, it makes it all worthwhile. We've heard that many times. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Al. I appreciate taking the time. Uh, good luck with the Radiothon. I know you'll do well. And for everybody listening, give them a shout, throw a few bucks in and, uh, and make a difference for the people that really need it. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you to my guests, Gerilyn and Larry, who shared their stories and how they navigated cancer both individually and in their families. They both shared the importance of proactivity, health literacy, and support from their communities and medical teams. As we heard from Al Pelly, one of those critical supports for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians that may be traveling to St. John's for cancer treatment, needing information on cancer care, requiring transport to treatment, or even a wig or prosthesis is Daffodil Place and the Canadian Cancer Society. I've been a board member at Daffodil Place for several years and can attest to the amazing work they do. This year has been a hard year for their fundraising efforts, so if you get a chance and you want to make a difference, please call 1-844-229-0146 to make a donation to their one-night stand against cancer. In our next episode, we'll chat with local basketball legend Carl English as he talks about his career in basketball and his new academy here in St. John's. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.